Thank you, Catherine. Uh, do flick back to page 501 to Esther, uh, chapter 1. Let me add my welcome uh, to Michael's. And just to say about our APCM coming up, our, um, that, uh, our, our annual meeting, do, do pick up those, those reports. There is time for a kind of Q&A during that uh, meeting as well. What would be really helpful, if you read through the reports or there's just other things in your minds and you, you would like to ask some questions, um, if you're able to, do submit them beforehand in, in the newsletter that comes out uh, this week on Tuesday, if you get the email. And there'll be a little link to an online form and you can pop questions in there. If we could get them uh, by Monday, uh, a week on Monday, uh, that is, that would be really helpful. And there's more chance of getting to, to answer your questions. Uh, let, let me lead us in a prayer again, just as we come to look at God's Word. Um, Heavenly Father, as Michael's already um, encouraged us to think about, in, in all the things we do, we need your help. Uh, so please help us uh, as we listen to your Word. Uh, so that we do that in the right way and be drawn to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, what kind of book is this? Um, uh, focused on a young woman who's taken from her home uh, to an unbelievably hostile environment. And many lives, including hers, are on the line literally, or they're going to be. And yet somehow she's able to discover God's goodness despite humanity's worst. Uh, she'll discover God's goodness despite humanity's worst. If you don't know the book, the book I'm talking about, of course, is The Hiding Place. I don't know if you, you've read it yourself. It's the story of Corrie ten Boom. I was reminded of it. I read it some time ago. I was reminded of it just the, the other week. Her family, if you don't know it, during... The Second World War uh, hid Jewish people in their home from the Nazis in the Netherlands. Uh, they were eventually betrayed uh, and arrested. And Corrie and her sister Betsy went to various places, but eventually ended up in, uh, in the Ravensbrück concentration camp, uh, if you know the story. Uh, Betsy, I think Corrie's older sister, all sorts of things she said to her would be encouraging her, would say, we must thank God for these situations. There's one of the accounts in the book, if you read it, and I, I was reminded of it, I, I've ordered some copies, got them, they're three pounds each. Uh, if you've not read it, three pounds well spent to read this book, maybe alongside uh, looking at Esther. But on one occasion, uh, Betsy said, we must thank God for the fleas. Uh, they were living in terrible situation, huts ridden with fleas. Corrie couldn't understand why. And she would say, thank God for that. And uh, Betsy says, it keeps the guards out. And it means that we can do some Bible studies uh, with the other prisoners. So we must thank God for the fleas. How'd you get to have that kind of perspective on life, to see God's goodness despite humanity's worst. Why would you even look for God's goodness or, or hope of finding it? I suspect in part it's because in some way you've encountered the God you'll meet in the book of Esther. And that's the book we're going to be looking at uh, together, the part of the Bible we're going to be hearing from over the next two months. Uh, tonight, what we're going to do is just try and find a way for all of us, whether you've read it before or you're coming to it the first time, find a way into the book and begin to hear 
uh, what God's saying through it. And just as we begin, let, let me ask, if you've got it open in front of you, what, here's the question, what kind of a book is this? Uh, and let me mention some, a few things that you can maybe keep in mind. You don't need to learn them all, but you keep in mind as we go through it. Uh, let me say, this is a book I think you'll find is foreign and familiar. It's, it's set in the Persian Empire around 480 BC. That is far away from us. I mean, if I was to ask most of us, do you know much about the Persian Empire? I mean, uh, there's probably somebody here who does, isn't there? That's the way it always goes, almost any topic. Some of you won't. Most of us won't. But it's far away from us. Yet some of the characters that we'll meet in this book and the choices they'll make, while they're writ large in this story, I think you'll, you'll find from time to time, gosh, that feels familiar. Uh, not in the same way, but in, in little ways I can read myself back into that. I think you'll find this is a book that's about the powerful and the powerless. Uh, the contrasts will be stark as we go through it. Those with power have lots. Those without know it. And by chapter 3, people at the top will make decisions to ruin the lives of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and then just seem to open a bottle of wine after they've done that. That's the way it will go. It's a book as well, I think you, you'll find as you read it and you're trying to get your head around it, that it's frightening and funny, which seems like a, a strange thing to say. Uh, there are truly frightening people in this book. Truly frightening. We're meant to look at them and be deeply unsettled by them. They will do things and come up with ways for killing people that are horrific. And yet you'll find... Even as you go through this book along the way, you, as you read about them, you'll find the writer present them in, in such a way that it, that it kind of makes you laugh. And you'll be thinking, if you're reading it properly, should we be laughing here? Is something this serious uh, meant to be funny? It, it's funny the way the, the book will play with us like that. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Wicked people are really serious. The things they do are really serious. But often they're a joke as well. A friend who's, I don't know if they're at the evening service, sent me this picture. I don't know if you can see it. Uh, somebody's, can you see what it says there? There's a dog bin. Somebody's st stuck a picture of Vladimir on it and written Putin. Um, it, there, there is something about that, isn't it? It's, not, it's almost gallows humor. It, it kind of diffuses things. Humor at times, even with the really serious stuff, it's a way of engaging it. When we feel powerless, at times it, it, it gives us a way to just, how do I think about this? How do I get a different perspective on it? So it's, it's a bit like that. It will be frightening and funny at times. It's also a book where it seems God's nowhere, and yet he's everywhere. If you don't know this book, you'll discover the first of those things as you read through it, no mentions of God in this book. Never mentioned explicitly. No explicit miracles in this book. There's no angels visiting anyone in this book. There's no prophets coming with a message anywhere in this book. Just life in a hostile kingdom. And yet get to the end and you'll look back and you come back to some of the details and you'll find yourself thinking God's been, oh, he's been everywhere. So you want a book like this. 
You want to read a book like this. You want to let it engage you because that's the kind of world you live in at times, don't you? Most of the time, we often find ourselves living in a world where that's it. Often, there's no dramatic miracles in your life. There's no angels visiting you. There's no prophet coming with a, a particular message. And you feel at times, don't you, you, like you live in a slightly hostile kingdom that if, if people around you at work or even in your family, if they, they press you on the things you believe, you know it wouldn't go down very well. Maybe you feel it at school. It's life in a hostile kingdom. It feels like God is nowhere at times. And so it'd be good to feel confident actually he is everywhere. And so you begin to realize this is a book in some ways that's about image and reality. It's going to put lots of things on display for us. We will see lots of things, but what's really real is going to sneak out in other ways. Just look out for them. As you go through this book, the, the way the writer will do that for us, look out for... Well, look out for those who look really powerful being rescued by those who seem really weak. Look out for those who, who can't lose being beaten by those who can't win. This book is going to show you those things kind of it turned on their heads at time. And you'll begin to see this is, look, this is the kind of book through which God will train you to look at things carefully and to begin to learn not to confuse image with reality. We need that, don't we? We live in a world where image is everything, where things are presented to us all the time, where narratives are captured and put out there. We need a book that will help us and will begin to train us to spot the difference between image and reality. And look, as, as well as look, what, what kind of a book is this? We, I guess the other question as you come to it, you, you might also be thinking, well, how did we get here? How, how did we get to this book in uh, Persia around uh, 500 BC or so? It, here's here's a, a brief kind of overview. God, God's people are scattered at this point across the Persian Empire. And if you ask what's going on, look, you, you remember in the story of the Bible when the world back in Genesis starts to spin, it starts to, because of sin, starts to spin not out of control, but certainly into darkness, God makes a promise. Makes a promise to, to a man called Abraham. He'd been living in a place called Ur of the, the Chaldeans. Uh, but he'd moved with his family, eventually getting to a new land. And in, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, right back at the beginning of the Bible, God says, look, one day, here's the promise, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God has got a, a great big rescue plan that's going to be underway. And it starts with this man, with his family. And this rescue plan is going to come through this family. And the family grows becomes a nation. They have God's word, God's promises, God's presence with them. But you follow through the story about this family and this nation in the Old Testament and they, they turn away from God. They ruin life. They ruin themselves. And after repeated warnings, God hands them over to 
the experience of life without him and his blessing. They go into exile. First under Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar is the king who who captures them at that point, but then Babylon's taken over by the the Persian Empire, and that's where we find ourselves in this book of Esther. And here we find two of these Jewish people, we're going to meet them next week and beyond, two of these Jewish people at the heart of the Persian Empire in the citadel of Susa. Now, Susan might not mean anything to you, but even in, in Bible terms, it's interesting because it's interesting to discover that Susa is not that far from Ur, the place where Abraham started. You ever had that feeling of all the progress you've made and you think you've really achieved something and you lose it all and you find yourself back at the beginning again? You've lost it all. Do you ever have that with maybe college work? You were saving on your computer. You thought you'd back it up later. You didn't back it up and you lost it all. Everything's gone. That's the kind of thing that's going on here as you get to this book. Uh, They're back at the beginning. That's what it seems. All that progress, all the places you you made it to, it's, it's all been wiped out. That's what this looks like. You've gone from being people at the very center of God's plan to people who look like they're right on the edge now and about to be discarded, forgotten. Maybe as you, you get that in this story, it's one of those moments where you read yourself in and you think at times, that's how I feel. So I don't know all of you here, but maybe you feel, you've got to the point in life where you're, you thought you'd made it somewhere, but you're, you're now feeling like you're stuck on the edge almost forgotten, almost about to be discarded in some way. And look, the thing is, look, as you, as you come to this book, and this will be a really good book for you if you felt like that, as you come to this book, what you'll find here is the, the two Jewish people will meet Mordecai and Esther. While they may look like they're on the edge, it turns out they're actually right at the center of what God's doing to work out his plans and to keep his promises. And that's a real comfort, isn't it? When things looked at their worst, God was still at work. And you begin to see again what this book's doing with with image and reality, how it's training you to look at things, not just how they appear. It's gonna train us to look at things trusting God and what he said. So as we begin, if you've got it in front of you, that's a big long intro as we start this book, uh, as we look at at chapter one uh, and have a think about, is this an impressive kingdom, this Persia that we find ourselves uh, with, or is it a laughable kingdom? And look, here's here's the first of two things, uh, and it's this, don't be quickly impressed by power. Uh, Chapter one in, in Esther, you read this chapter or as it was read to us, maybe you thought it, and you feel that the, the writer is kind of falling over themselves to show us the size of everything. At verse 1, it's a vast kingdom that covers 127 provinces. At verse 3, there's, there's vast uh, military strength. All, all the, the military leaders have got together. At verse 4, there's vast wealth. Verse 5, there's vast generosity. The king's liberality. And I don't know if you noticed, this, this party, the celebration, I mean, his wealth is displayed for six months. 
If I displayed my wealth, it'd probably take about six minutes. But he's going to display it for six months just so you get time to, to uh, see it all. But I don't know if you notice who gets invited within Susa uh, to the, the party to celebrate all of this. We're told it's from everyone, all the people, from, from the least to the greatest. You'd be there. You'd get invited to this. You'd be in on this Persian party. And you see what you're given, verse 8. Uh, by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. It's not bad, is it? Here's a king who's generous. Here's the order that goes out. You can have as much as you want. This is the, the all-you-can-eat buffet and more. Uh, the champagne is not off limits here either. You don't have to pay extra for that. It, it's all there for you. I mean, this, this feels like a kingdom you want to belong to, doesn't it? A king you'd want to be under. Can you imagine living under a king as generous as that? And, and then there's the, the vast beauty as well. Uh, you look at the description of the, the banquet facilities in verse 6, and it's John Lewis plus, isn't it? I mean, it's just... I sometimes go into John Lewis, and I, I just go up to the furniture section, and I think, I'd love to sit in one of these sofas, sit there for a bit. This would be nice at home, wouldn't it? Then I look at the price tag and think, maybe not, maybe not. But this is John Lewis plus all the stuff they've got. And then to top it off, the queen is sent for. Here's the pinnacle of the beauty on display. Vashti, I don't know who'd be considered the, the beauties in our culture, the Cardassians or something like that. Vashti is, is that kind of league, uh, I imagine. I've never seen the TV show, but she's called for. Um, she, in order to display her beauty. And you look at Persia, and I think with all this stuff in front of you, and you, you want to applaud the image. Everything that's been presented to you, I mean, it's generous, it's powerful, it's stable. I mean, that's how it looks. But as we read it, did you notice how quickly it changes? All that stuff, it, it, it changes uh, from uh, verse 12, isn't it? And it's, it's such a silly thing, isn't it? The chain of events from verses 12 to verse 22. Queen Vashti refuses to come. Says, no, I'm not coming. And Xerxes goes off the deep end. I mean, absolutely loses the plot. But filled with anger, he doesn't know what to do. He's no idea. What do we do? He's got to get advisors round for this. He gets his advisors, and one of them suggests an appropriate response to this embarrassing situation is, you've got to go global. That's what you've got to do, Xerxes. This has got to be a, a global situation. You need to tell the world what Vashti has done. And then proclaim a law that every man should be ruler over his own household. That's what we need to do in this situation. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it, when you read it? You read this, and you think, this isn't a kingdom that's generous. It's a kingdom that's demanding. As you're, as you're observing this, if you're just on the edge of it, if you're there, you begin to realize that underneath all the things it's giving, it's very clear there's a sense of what it wants from you. And it's, not, it's also not just powerful. It's really hostile. If you decide in some way not to give what's expected of you, well, what you can expect is to be out. And it's not enough for you just to be out 
everyone needs to know that you're out. You see verse 19? Just have a look at it. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a, a, issue a royal decree and let it be tweeted, I mean, not tweeted, let it, let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of Xerxes. You know what this is, don't you? That's cancel culture, 500 BC. You know how we said that this book will begin to feel completely foreign and yet totally familiar? Same kind of things going on. Don't know if you followed the cancelling of, or attempted cancelling of J.K. Rowling. Uh, for the way, she's, the way she's been attacked online for her views on single-sex spaces for women, I, I imagine she could read this and say, totally get what's happening here. And this is not just power. This is hostility. Uh, but you also feel this kingdom, while well, it looked stable, it's actually quite weak, isn't it? Do you get that as you, as you read it? Just look at what's happening. Vashti is not being described as an embarrassment and out of order. She's a danger to the empire. Do you get that? Do you hear what's going on? She's a danger to the empire. Vashti's a danger to every man across the empire. I mean, that's quite incredible, isn't it? It's quite a, a chain of events to go from, I'm not going to come now, Big social embarrassment, but now she's a danger to every man and every household uh, across the empire, everywhere. We need to cancel her, uh, and we need to pass a global law to protect everyone from her. You see what I mean about this book being frightening and funny at the same time? I mean, it's alarming that things like this could happen, it's a bit funny that the reaction is that strong. You, you look at this and you think, are you kidding, guys? You're the ruler of the world and you can't sort out a domestic. You have an empire across 127 promises, uh, pro, uh, provis, provinces and you're worried it'll collapse because your wife's a bit rude. Really? Oh, it doesn't look very stable. It looks pretty weak. And you want to let everyone know. I don't know if you've watched uh, Scottish politics uh, recently. Uh, if you have, have you been surprised how quickly the SNP have gone from a kind of total power to, it seems like total jokers, all, all this stuff about the camper van. I mean, it's not funny, is it? People's lives are at stake there as well. Not in the same way, but businesses. But, but it kind of is. See, watch out for laughable kingdoms. That's what Esther says, this book as we begin. Don't be quickly impressed by power. There's the first thing. Don't be quickly impressed by power. Here's the second thing. Do learn to spot impressive power. And if you would in your Bibles, turn over to page 1008, back to the second reading we had from Mark chapter 6. And as you get there, with this I just lovely story of the, the feeding of the 5,000, as you come over there and we meet Jesus here, let, let me say this. The thing about power and authority, it's inescapable, isn't it? I will have it in certain situations. All of us will have power and authority in 
certain situations, from the oldest uh, to the youngest. Maybe you've got it at work, maybe at home it's just over your dog, but you've got some sort of power and authority in certain situations. All of us will be under it in others, which means you can't avoid it, and it also means that people can use it in good ways and bad ways. This other reading from Mark, there's another king giving a feast. Here's the link. Back in Esther 1, Xerxes is giving a big feast. Here in Mark chapter 6, it's going to be Jesus. At first glance, he doesn't look anywhere near as impressive as Persia, does he? At first look, his kingdom is a laughable kingdom. It's Jesus out in the countryside with his disciples and then a crowd. But then you look carefully and you notice this king here. He's stable. He's powerful. He's generous. Do you see his stability? Xerxes... Things didn't go to plan at his big dinner party and he's throwing people out. See with Jesus, verse 31? He's taking his disciples away, even the way he speaks about it because they've not even had a chance to eat. They've been so busy and he he takes them away. Come away with me just by yourselves. Uh, He wants to give them some rest. But then verse 33, the crowds arrive and threw all the dinner plans out the window. And you see what Jesus does in verse 34. See what it says? He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them. The stable, steady state of King Jesus is one of compassion towards people. That's what this king's like. That's what his kingdom's like. His stable, steady state towards you is one of compassion. And when dinner time is pressing, in a kind of unflustered way, he seems to say to his disciples, I'm sure uh, with a smile on his face, in verse 37, let's see if we can fit everyone in. (laughs) You ever do that at home? Oh, I've just brought some extra people for dinner. There's 5,000 of them. Well, there's 5,000 men plus women and children as well. His power, it really isn't hostile, is it? He provides food in a miraculous way. Xerxes' feast, it felt exciting because it was indulgent. Jesus' feast, verse 42, it leaves everyone satisfied. That's what you want. But look, what you you really want to do is is begin to spot his generosity. Uh, let Let me show you just a little bit about that. Come to verse 41. And let me read it again for you. It it goes like this. Uh, Jesus has got them all sitting down, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the bread. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute them to the people. Now, it seems an obvious little thing. But if you think just for a moment, that pattern of words comes up again a bit later in Mark's Gospel. That pattern of words, taking bread, giving thanks, breaking it, and giving it to his disciples. It comes up again at the Lord's Supper, where Jesus with bread will picture his body being broken on the cross, paying for the sin of the world. Here's what impressive power really looks like. A king with global authority who gives himself sacrificially for others. 
Don't be quickly impressed by power. But do learn to spot impressive power. Because Esther will show us while you might live between all sorts of different kingdoms in some ways, you will have to choose which one gets your ultimate allegiance. That's the beginning of the book. We're going to come back to it in, uh, over the next few weeks. Thinking about this feast, we are going to be uh, sharing bread and wine as we think about our king in a moment. Before we do that, we are going to sing again about this king, the Lord Jesus, who loves us and has given himself 